This podcast is part of the Everyday Heroes Podcast Network, the network for first responders and those who support them. Hi, I'm Abby Ellsworth. I am a civilian interviewing law enforcement from around the country. But today I can say from around the world because I have my first international guest. Joining me is Constable James Walkling. He is with the New Zealand Police Department and has been since 2019. He's originally from the UK and started his career in law enforcement there in 2011 with the Metropolitan Police, with whom he was a constable for two years. James, welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, let's dig right in. I know that you started with the Metropolitan Police in the UK. The Metropolitan Police covers most of London, and there also is the City of London Police. Yeah, which is a different police force. Okay. So you have like in the middle, the city, sort of more of a square mile. And then the rest of the London is covered by Metropolitan Police. Okay. Well, I want to hear all about what that was like. Let's start with what made you decide to join the Metropolitan Police? What made you become a police officer? Originally, I wanted to get into the police really from bad experiences that I had with the police. I've dealt with police probably about two or three times before as a young person. None of those experiences were great, just the attitude of of the officers and the way they dealt with me. They must have had bad days. And um, I just remember, I thought to myself, if these guys are like this, this something needs to change. This this is ridiculous, just the way they were. So that was part of the element of it. Anyone in sort of law enforcement will tell you there's also uh, sort of the idea of doing some really interesting things that you can't do in any other career. So there was those elements. And also at the time, Metropolitan Police were recruiting. My friend had actually got into the police and sort of encouraged me as well. So originally, I never, ever, ever actually thought of ever being law enforcement of any kind. It's complete opposite from my uh, family history. But uh, yeah, I ended up joining and doing two years there. I know from hearing you interviewed by my friend Anthony McNeil, he interviewed you for his off-duty podcast. And I'm part of his network, the Everyday Heroes Podcast Network. And you talked about being growing up in the foster care system. And then your family, most of them not being on the path that would take you into law enforcement. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, um, I, so both my parents weren't able to look after me from a young age. Um, so I was putting what, I'm not sure how in American terms, but effectively the courts took me from the custody of my parents from the age of six onwards. Um, so I was through foster care, children homes, all the way up um, until I was an adult. And unfortunately, I had two brothers. Um, they went through the system Later, the results were they ended up going complete opposite from law enforcement on the old criminal path, and I ended up going on the uh, the right path, I'd say. <laughs> so, The foster care system is not great here, although I, th- I think there are many good foster parents. Is What was your experience? Um, I'm, you know, uh, being someone that's lived in two different countries and seeing the foster care system, whether it be in the UK or in actually New Zealand as a officer uh, i seem to think that they copy and paste the system everywhere the reality is so for the uk system about half our prison population in the uk comes from the care system around about i think about 70 percent of all children in the care system end up not even having a basic educational achievement when they leave at 16 from school, it's it's pretty much disastrous. I mean, if it, I always say to people, if, if it had been any other people's children, would there be people being up in arms at the sort of levels? Um, and there's lots of reasons for that. 
but the reality is, is it's not good. And um, I always say to people, the saddest thing, and I always remember when I left when I was 18, we used, we'd had this, what you call reviews. So they review review you every year to see what development and what you need. And I remember the reviewer looked at me and said, you know, she said, I've done this for many years and you're the first one that's going to make it. And I thought that was really sad. Wow. Did you feel good when she said that or? No, it was a changing time in my life. I look it back now and think that's actually really sad that they got a system where you have someone that's saying that. And the reality is when I look at it, it pretty much was right. You do get the odd child that does well. But I think that's more of a luck thing then or just the sheer grit of that person rather than the system. There's one child that makes it ever. How many? Wow. That's not good. It's not good at all. What did you, What was it about you, do you think, that she saw? I don't know at that time, if I'm honest. I think there was just enough in me to just be able to be determined. Uh, you know, I, I never sort of, I was one of those people I never gave up. If I wanted to do something, I'd go and do it. And I think it was that bit of grit in me that basically got me through. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I know it, you know, age six must have been tough. My father died when I was six from open heart surgery. And mm. I think kids at six years old know a lot more of what's going on than people think they know. Oh, without, so, you know, I can still remember very clear things at six. Um, you know, when you're, when you're being taken away from parents and stuff like that, that'll always be with you because, you know, it's a child. I mean, I've got two children of my own. You're their world, you know, um, when they're at that age. And did you understand what was going on when they took you? Not really, no. You know, it's one of those uh, sort of uh, situations where it was late in the... I remember it clear as day, late in the evening, and suddenly all these people just turned up at my door and were taking me away. And it's quite ironic because I now... Sometimes I've been on that side. I've had to do that. Being obviously in law enforcement, we have to sometimes do that. So it's really weird sometimes to be actually on the other side. But certainly, you know, as a small child, it's just a normal day and then suddenly these people are coming to take you away. Oh, that's really hard. Had you been aware that you, there were issues with your parents or was this new information? No. So I've been in and out of what, like respite care uh, since I've been a, alive. So I'd always, the system was around. And I actually, <laughs> I remember one time before I was taken, there was a police officer and... Um, he came to the house and I got scared. So I ran and I ran down the street. I must have been five or something. And uh, I remember, I still remember it clear as day, this police officer chasing me down. Um, and it was running. So it wasn't a good start in life, you know, being chased at, in before I was even six years old by a policeman, you know. <laughs> was that one of the two encounters? No. So were... the other encounters was when I was in children's homes. The, the attitudes of the officers were not very good when. Um, they were coming into the children's homes. Hmm. Do you know why? I, I, couldn't, I couldn't tell you why at that point in time. Um, maybe because they didn't want to deal with uh, teenagers, teenagers with attitudes as well. We all know dealing with teenagers is they can be challenging at the best of time, you know. So you've had to be that officer both in the UK and in New Zealand. Hmm. What's that like? It is challenging. However, you know, you get to look at the other side of the coin. You know, there's a reason that you're there. You know that what there's there's a whole process. You know, people think that they'll just police or the services will just come and take your children. It's not that simple. There's a lot that goes into doing that to get to that stage. There's a lot of people that have to be involved to make those decisions. So 
It is challenging. I hate it, uh, if I'm honest. I think it's one of the worst parts of the job, you know, taking uh, someone's child away. Even if you know it's the best thing for a child, as a parent, it's challenging to think of that. I mean, you ask anyone, they would not let their child be taken away. But the reality is, is that some people, they need their children to be taken away for the for their child's safety, you know. Um, so I don't get too upset now because I look at it and think this is the reason why we're doing it and it's for the best interest of the child. Now I look at it like even though I look at myself and think about that time, I can say, well, as an adult, that was the best thing that happened to me was to be taken away from my parents. Yeah. Mm. It must bring with you when you go on those calls a certain amount of empathy for those kids yeah i mean it's, it's weird it's a whole blend because you, you know as a parent it's it would be challenging i look at it from parent point of view it'd be extremely challenging i look at it from that child that i was as well and uh, understanding how terrifying it is for them so it is very challenging but you yeah you just got to do what you got to do and as imperfect as you can and talk to the child and explain to them i've heard other officers i've interviewed one in, who sticks to, in my mind say that she wanted to become a police officer because she wanted to be the change mm. she wanted to not be the officer that she had experienced growing up. I think it's great that you chose this path to make a difference. Mm. So you joined the Metropolitan Police. Tell me what it's like to police in London. Yeah, obviously it was some uh, some years ago. The reality of London, it's quite a bustling place. I know the populations would around them would have been around about 8 million people. Yeah, at that time, we had quite a few terrorist incidents. So we had the heightened terrorist attacks. So we were dealing with a lot of that. Uh, in massive increase in youth crime, stabbing youth crime, things like that really. Always busy, always something going on. Unfortunately, there was always, we'd have one, two murders a weekend due to stabbings at that time. So it was a challenging place, but really fun place as well. In terms of testing for the Metropolitan Police, I don't know if you know a lot about testing here in the States. You have to test and then go through the academy. Yeah. Yeah. Similar? Uh, very similar. Yeah, yeah. So you'd go for an interview. You'd have an academic test, a written test. You'd have multiple interviews for the day, scenarios. And then if you pass that, you'd have a abysmal fitness test, I'd call it. Um, <laughs> and then if you pass that, you'd have a, uh, obviously a physical test. Uh, sorry, a, a medical. And then, yeah, and then you'd get in, you go to academy, do that for that time of six months. Unlike America, we get it's all paid for. So once you get accepted, you're, 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 you get paid to go to academy. And then once you've done that, you go on to the job. So I also understand that in the UK, you are not armed. You do not carry a gun. So in the Met, you're not armed, no. So you have a bat and a spray. It's very interesting because, you know, the view of American police, like the way we see, like, American officers with guns, uh, it's very different. We see it quite weird to imagine having a gun. But then it's ironic because in New Zealand police work, well, it's hard to explain, but semi-armed. So I've got like the view of both worlds. I've been unarmed with a bat and spray. And then I've also been armed as well as a New Zealand police. So I've, I've lived both the worlds. How can you be a police officer and not be armed? Well, it's because the crime there is different. So New the UK has such strict firearm laws. Firearms up till recently weren't prevalent. Um, and I believe that came back from a historical school shooting where someone went into a school and killed teachers and children. And from that, they became so harsh with gun laws. 
So just getting a gun license is extremely difficult there. However, I know now there is the talk of arming police because of the rise of terrorism. So there is that challenge there. You're used to it there. It's often, how can you not be armed? To So UK police would be like, how can you be armed? It makes no sense. <laughs> you know, it's the opposite. <laughs> so, but when you show up to a call, and let's say it's a domestic violence call, or someone with a knife, or... A terrorist, how do you... Deal with it. If, how, yeah. if someone's coming at you with a knife, what do you do? Yeah, well, I mean, f- first thing I always say, like anyone in law enforcement, 90% of your abilities is your mouth. You know, most interactions you deal with is your mouth. So I know now in the Met they've got tasers, uh, which don't always work. The people have this perception that tasers always work. They don't. They definitely do not always work. No, they don't. The way we used to do it was obviously you could spray them, you could batten them. But the idea of if someone's got a knife is you'd send quite a few officers and it'd be immediately to detain that person, handcuff them, and then deal with them. So there wouldn't be much of a talking going on. There'd be hands-on, handcuff, and then talk to them. So you can do it, deal with it that way, especially with when I was there dealing with youth crime. It would often seem quite brutish because you'd have a, a van full of police officers turn up surround a group of youths and be pulling them away and handcuffing them before they talk to them, which is not a really good public impression. But the reality was is that, you know, you could be dealing with that group that have just been involved in a knife attack. You've got 10 individuals. You don't know what they've got. Now, your safety at the end of the day is most important. So you have a stab-proof vest, but it only protects certain parts. So you want to detain the person and then deal with them in a bit more of a calm way. And, you know, I should... Be clear on how I say this, because in the United States, most officers will never use their firearm. Yeah. You know, they may have to unholster it, but the majority, I don't want to give the wrong, the majority of the time officers do not shoot and they do not have to take a life. So that is, I don't want to make it sound, and I know you know this already. No, no, I, I think I think you know you're, you're fully right. There's there's levels of violence, and obviously it needs different levels of protection and force. Because if you can't protect yourself, how can you protect other people? That's really what you're saying. So uh, you know you go from as I say, ninety percent of your your powers and officers, your mouth. Uh, you can normally deal with that. That's your first weapon. But the gun is the extreme end. The reality is, is that's still part of our job. And I don't ever believe cops going you know this perception that police are there to hurt people i mean that's crazy that's what this is absolutely insane to imagine someone wants to go out go get up in the morning say goodbye to the family and then go and want to shoot someone that's the most right. extreme thing ever right no one wants to do that but you do need the protection you do need to have ability to look after yourself right and and police will say to me as well you'll use your mouth much more than you'll use any other weapon. Communication is the key. It is the key, definitely, without a doubt. You know, a lot of what they talk about here in the States these days is de-escalation and um, crisis intervention training, which I don't know if they present it the same way. Yeah, um, so UK police and New Zealand police, um, it is about de-escalating. You're always trying to bring people down. But, I mean... They talk about that train. I any officer will try to de-escalate because you want to be able to deal with it as easy as possible. You don't want to be fighting people every day. The reality is the people we deal with can be very challenging. And there's some people you can't de-escalate with. 
because they're, they're only going to be looking for streams. But majority of people, you can. And you do it, everyone does it. Every single person does it naturally. It's just police officers are just generally better at doing it because they deal with it every day. So when you hit the street, how when you started in the UK, how old were you? I was about 22. So I was extreme, I was young, young guy then. And was it exciting? Was it what you thought it would be? Was it scary? It was, it was very different from what I expected it to be. Uh, it was a weird time then. There was a lot of politics going on. There was a lot of change going on within the police force at the time. I mean, it was obviously very exciting. You get to do really cool things. I was 22, so that's everything's cool when you do get to go and do calls. But it was also very challenging. There was always a high expectation from you, which is not necessarily a bad thing. So it was it was a, it was a fun time. Do you start in patrol as you do here in the states? Yeah, so you do two years patrol frontline minimum requirement, and then you go for your probationary period, and then you can go on to other workforces or other sections. And do you have, were you in a car or were you on foot? Both, both. So there's the old image, I think, of the English police on foot. So they, they, they doesn't really happen a lot as much now, but um, you did. So the, at that time, I said there was a lot of terrorist attacks. So you, you would generally be in the car, but every so often you would be in higher risk areas. So, for example, train stations, places like that. And w- were there any terrorist attacks that we would be familiar with that happened during your time? Um, so, yeah, so you had the – I came in just after the tube bombing. So it was the – what, 2011, I think it was, yeah, where it was the attack on the London tubes. So we had that. I mean, but they, unfortunately yeah, for UK, there's been so many now. It's almost become quite normal over there. I guess the crimes also then were – what would is it similar you know similar to america um i mean it depends on the area that you work in uh, i think you'll probably find is that different areas have different kind of crimes um so predominantly where i worked was a little bit further out of london than the center part and it was the capital of the uk for domestic violence so it was a very really predominant domestic violence area high poverty a lot of traditional jobs were lost so it had a huge, it had um, GM Motors Ford, it had a huge factory there and they had the traditional docks and things like that for trade. That was all closed. So there was a hell of a um, decline in the area. So you were dealing with a lot of domestic crime, uh, predominantly disorder jobs, stuff like that. That was the bread and butter of what I used to do. I've interviewed a number of officers about responding to domestic violence and it's a challenge. Yeah, uh, I mean, domestic, the problem with domestic, I think, the biggest challenge for officers, it's not known danger because you can train for that, you can plan for that unknown danger. And with domestic violence, you never know what you're going into. You just don't quite know what's happened. The reality is, is by the time you've been called in to that job, the amount of episodes that's probably happened between them is, you know, it's got to such extreme that they've rang us, but it would have built up all the way through. You know, being in a relationship, you have your natural emotions and people are very strong emotions. So you're dealing with people with very strong emotions. You could be dealing with children that are seeing it. And you're walking into someone's house where it's their place, their rules, because they know where everything is in the house. You don't know where everything is. And so it's, it's really challenging. And you're coming in and they could be thinking, well, I'm going to be arrested. And that's I could lose my job. Or It's extremely challenging environment, extremely challenging. 
and dangerous. Very dangerous, very dangerous. It's. I think if you look at it, I think traffic stops are dang, most dangerous, and then it'll be domestic domestic violence. And that's no different from America, UK, and New Zealand. It's exactly the same when it comes to levels of danger. It's the same sort of thing because also that's the two traffic stops and domestic violence are the two things that you deal with the most. And so those are obviously going to be the highest dangers anyway. Okay, I have to go back to this. So if someone pulls a gun on you, what do you do? In UK, you run. That's the reality of it. (laughs) You run. Because what can you do? Like, I I wouldn't be hanging around. I I mean, the reality is, is that guns are so rare there. That's what you got to understand. Okay. Just having a gun is pretty much going to get you a prison sentence. So criminals are reasonably intelligent in the sense, I say most of them, because organised guys, there's something else. But your, your bread and butter criminals, they know that the gun's pretty much an automatic sentence where if I have a knife, I can argue, well, I, hey, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm going around, I'm a chef. You know, but they, they've, got a, they've got an argument for that. So... The, the criminals will always be looking, well, I'm not going to want a gun because I'm already in trouble for that. I'm going to take a knife. And if you look at, like, for example, the terrorist attacks over there, um, there has been obviously bombs, but they're predominantly using things like trucks or machetes because you're going to use what's available to you. So over there, it's that's the case. Ironically, in New Zealand, where I work, we have extremely high amount of guns. Oh, really? Yeah. So we have, um, it's not on the level of America, but gun ownership is high here so we have a lot of farming we have a lot of hunting so guns are very it's very prevalent in new zealand okay so let's let's jump to let's jump across the water (laughs) to new zealand (laughs) yeah let's go it goes back to the far south yeah yeah (laughs) and how did you make the move why and how does it compare tell me about your current yes so i moved to new zealand because of my partner uh, I met her in London, and she wants to move back to New Zealand, but decided to stay with me and keep there for a while. And she said, "Look, why don't you just come to New Zealand and see what you think?" So we did a month in New Zealand, and I said, "Yep, I'll move." And that's what I needed. So we moved a year later. I've moved to a new country. I was thinking, okay, what am I going to do for a career? At that time, I was thinking of going to teaching. Tried that. I started studying for that. Absolutely hated it. <laughs> and then um, I thought this is not for me and then I saw a police were advertising here so I thought well I know what I'm getting into so I applied went through the museum police did the training I went from city policing to rural policing mm. we cover quite a very large area probably have around about southern member population but I think it's between 35 to 45,000 people However, like in America, the issues we have are very similar. We've like rural environments, so high amount of methamphetamine crime. Huge problem in New Zealand is meth. We're high amount of domestic. So the area I work in is a, a low economic area. So there's the challenges of poverty as well. So it's quite similar. You know, this is the ironic thing in America, UK or New Zealand. It's the same issues often. So as a New Zealand police, we are what you call semi-armed. So we carry a baton, spray, and a taser. We have access to firearms, but they're in our cars. So they're locked in a box in our cars. So, yeah, so it's a sort of a semi, semi-armed system. And just what got us to New Zealand is you, you mentioned the increase in uh, gun ownership. So what's going on there? Well, New Zealand actually has a strong history of gun ownership because of the culture here. So it's a very strong hunting culture. 
Um, it has a lot of rural, so you've got farmers. So it's always had a high sort of gun ownership. The issue that they have is um, criminals will look to steal those guns. So there's a lot of guns that are in the black market. So it's quite common for criminals to steal from legal gun owners and take their firearms to use. So in New Zealand, if someone pulls a gun on you, what do you do? <sighs> well, so this this is the this is um, I have to be careful because obviously I do work for the police, so I can't say certain comments. This is um, I'd highly recommend people have a look if they're interested in. There there is a conflict of interest in New Zealand, so there is a talk about being generally armed. So if you look at Australian police, which are very start similar style policing, they carry a Glock on them we don't at this time but there is a debate within the police about being armed generally at the moment we're not so if someone pulls a gun on us this is the argument that's happening at the moment well and i did do some reading you sent me some articles a year ago or not quite a year ago july 2021 constable matthew hunt was killed yeah and that seemed to have ignited this renewed debate yeah, so um, there is an, so he died. They did a traffic stop, and when the police officer approached, uh, he was one of the officers was shot. So the officer, the officer initially went to the car, got shot, and managed to run. Matt Hunt was trying to get the firearm from the the box in the car, and he was shot while trying to do that. So the way that works is the gun is locked in a box mm-hmm. in the car, and you literally have to go back to mm-hmm. the car, get the key. Yep. Open the box and get the gun out, yeah, and then load the gun. And then load it. Yep, so it's obviously we don't have a, we wouldn't have a loaded gun in, in a box because obviously there's a risk of someone picking it up and accidentally discharging a, a bullet. So, you know, you'd have, you'd have to manually load it. Uh, so you'd have to put one effectively in the chamber before you'd be active, yeah. So that's a lot of seconds. It's too many seconds. It's too many seconds. That's really tough. I didn't know that's how he was shot. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's not, um, it's not great. It wasn't great. Did you know Matthew? Hunt? No, I did not. No, Constable? no. Okay. So he was working further down in the country. I work, I work right at the top of the country, but I mean, uh, the the guy was found and obviously he's been imprisoned. So it was it was very challenging. I mean, that's ignited a massive debate around whether police in New Zealand should be generally armed or not. And there's a huge conflict going on there between that. And obviously you're going to have political politics going into it now. You're going to have different ideologies going into it. Different groups of people have different views on whether the police should be armed or not. And then obviously you've got the views of the officers themselves, whether they feel that they should be armed or not. However, I always say New Zealand's like, it's great. I love New Zealand, but it's a little bit behind the world because it has a luxury of being behind the world. It's a far, far away from everyone else. But crime is catching up with what it is like in the rest of the world. So you have a lot of um, what we call 501s, which is Australia deporting very hardened criminals into New Zealand. So they're bringing that hardened crime, more organised crime into it, and they're more willing to use force. They're more willing to use violence than what was traditionally happened here. Why are they deporting them to New Zealand? Um, that's a, so I, I think because they've got passports, the New Zealand passports, they don't want to deal with the crime there, even though they, some of these people are born in, like, they, they're born in New Zealand, but they go to Australia as a young child, and then they go and commit serious crimes, and they get deported back to New Zealand. And I think it's just politics behind that. And so the debate, it's 
some of the police don't want this. If So I read you have a police commissioner and a police minister? Yep, that's right, yep. What are those roles? So the police commissioner is the head of New Zealand police, and then the police minister is the... And uh, the politician that effectively works with police, I guess it would be working alongside of them. But they obviously would have the government's put, um, view of uh, policing. So they're the ones that can say, well, we'll increase policing numbers or stuff like that. What I read said they do not want this general arming. They don't want to be general armed. That, yeah, that's correct, yes. So it's like, yeah, it's like everything, there's a lot of things involved in that. I can't talk for them. There's a lot of politics behind everything, as I always say. Right. Well, and it probably to win the favor of voters. Oh, well, where where else do you, it's no different from any country in the world, isn't it? You know, they're going to appeal to their <laughs> right. voters, and it's uh, often you know one group will want to appeal to their voters, and if it means at an expense of the other, they will do that. You know, it's just unfortunately these days. I think we lost wherever you are, where we lost the ability to have a more sensible conversation and sit down and talk about things a bit better. So what is policing there like? What's a day like for you? Are you in a squad car? Are you with a partner? Yeah, so we do a large area. Uh, we're predominantly two of us in a, in a squad car. We, we have, although we're a rural environment, we're quite a busy environment where we are. The good thing I like about here is it's a small country. Um, so everyone knows everyone. It's, New Zealand has a population of about 5 million people for a country the size of the UK, which has about 64. So everyone knows everyone here. So you can have a bit more of a rapport with people. You can use that math a bit more and try and talk to people. Mm. And certainly in a smaller, uh, raw environment, people do know who you are. And so that can work on your side most of the time. It cannot always all the time. But So I enjoy actually having to have those conversations with people. It's a nicer style of policing than what I'd say from the city crazy, but we still get to do quite a lot of cool things as well. But we have a huge area to cover. Yes, it has its challenges, but very similar to anywhere, really. What are your shifts like? Because like here you have different departments call them different things. First, second, third watch, or they call them days, midnights. How are yours? So it does vary depending on where you are, because obviously very small rural places um, they only have a morning shift, which is basically through the day, and then a late shift, which is in the afternoon till about midnight. We do six days on, four days off. It basically two early shifts, which is basically the day. So two late shifts, which is the afternoon till about midnight, and then night shifts, which is 10 o'clock at night till 7 in the morning. And which one do you do? I do all of them. I do that shift. I do that shift. So it's six, of, six days on, four days off, two earlies, two lates, two nights. Oh, wow. So it's a bit different. So your sleep must be really... It's not healthy. It's not healthy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a challenge. Sleep is a big challenge. Oh, God. So do you have body cam? No. So I know UK police now, when I was, they didn't have body cam. New Zealand police doesn't have body cam. They have been talking about it, but they've not done it yet. But you do have tasers. Yeah, and the tasers have a, a camera on them. And do you have specialty units like here ranging from homicide unit to domestic violence to SWAT to bomb do you have all the yeah yeah so so we have we have those units not where I am because obviously we're rural we don't have the resources for that we have what you like central hubs where those teams will be and they can come out to us if we need it but we're kind of jack of all trades master of none up here 
because we kind of have to rely on ourselves. If we, for example, we want to call the armed unit or what you'd call your equivalent, I guess, SWAT, that's about a two-hour drive for, away from us. So that is if we're dealing with it, we have to kind of either control the area, call in the area and wait for them, or we have to deal with it ourselves. But, I mean, that would probably be the same for most rural policing in America, I assume, as well. Do you enjoy a level of support from your community? Predominantly, yes. I mean, the problem is, as, as, as officers, and any officer too, will tell you, and, and it often leads to, like, why police officers have such a darkened view of life. 90% of the people you deal with, it's on their worst day, or it's, you know, our criminal aspects. And people have put the impression that criminals are just nice people who are having a bad day. Like most of us, it's not. We're talking about often really well-organised people that are looking for a way to either intimidate you or get away with what they're doing, which is a crime. You kind of get used to that. So when you get someone that goes, oh, thank you, you know, I really appreciate you doing this, it can be a bit of a shock sometimes because you're not used to it. You're like, oh, oh, okay, I've got someone being nice. Um, but <laughs> still people in New Zealand um, have the back of the police. I think the frustrations that people have are not aimed so much at the police but more aimed behind the politics of what goes on, which mm. I don't have any control of. But I have noticed a hardening of attitudes towards the police that's not so good certainly the stuff in america has bled over no way to the same degree as other countries but there has been um a bleed over from um america but because we have that more responsive and bit more personal approach you can keep still maintaining those relationships a little bit better i'd say and why does it bleed over well because everything you know our the sort of Western world generally is heavily impacted by America. So there, there's historical things every country go to. There'll be historical elements with the police and it might not always be healthy. But I think the issues that happen in America, then people start to look at their own countries and then it brings up that. There's also, as I say, when 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 is there never not politics involved these days, you know? <laughs> um, so there's the political aspects to it as well. But I still I think we're still quite lucky here. We don't have that element as bad. Did the George Floyd murder affect you? I mean, I remember that day really clearly. We, we all looked at the video because obviously we're coming from a different perspective from an American officer. But I don't think I've ever met an officer ever that said that that was a good thing what he did there but there's this weird perception that this is what police are like and you know we all were like this is Mm. how could you do that as i said to you earlier no officer you know kisses their family goodbye with the intention of harming other people so for all of us we were were just shocked uh, as everyone else was about this what what this guy did so for us it was more of like this is not good. But then we saw what's happening in America with, I can say it, the riots, because that's what they were. They were riots. And, you know, the politics behind it. And I'm like, yeah, people need to be held account. But now this is, it's become a hydro, like it's gone into this multi-head beast. And luckily, so over here, we didn't have that. There were some conversations and some challenges about behaviours. The reality is, is that most cops are good people and they would never do a thing like that. You know, the riots that we had here, what does that look like to you when you see that on the news? I think, like, just as a normal person, not as a cop, because I am, I am a person too, believe it or not. Police officers are people too. <laughs> I just think it's sad. 
if I'm honest. Really sad. I'll tell you why. Because when I was a younger man, I always looked to because I've been to America a couple of times. So I, I, you know, I've enjoyed America and I've enjoyed being there. I always saw like America as it was a country where people were very different, but you know, you could do what you wanted to do, and there wasn't that divide. And then I just see it's just watching it rip itself apart, literally rip itself apart. And I'm like, you need to understand the world in a way relies on America because it's it does protect people, and you're ripping yourself apart. And what are you achieving from that? Really, hands and heart. What do you want to achieve? You're all the same people. You're Americans. All right. I don't look at you and look at your skin color and go, well, you're not American, you're American. As someone that's not from there, I just call you all Americans. And it's like, yeah, have your reforms. There's a lot of historical wounds and stuff. But, you know, you're not going to resolve that by ripping each other apart. Give each other a hand up. That's always what it is. It's about giving people hands up, helping them get from those positions. You know, if, if you're not happy with policing in America, I would say to the people that are not happy, become a police officer. Get involved. If you really want to believe in that, change it. Not by screaming and shouting. Go and get involved. Become police officers. You know, yeah. that's that's my view on it. I just think it's. I honestly think it's very sad. And the polarization. It's sad to see it go that way. It really is. It is. It's. Um. It's very hard to understand. Yeah. Honestly, I think it's the world of the internet and stuff like that. And that's why I've always been really about. And that's why I said I love. Having that one, having that more personal communication, and I think if people just did that, you know, I say like ride-alongs are really cool. Go and do a ride-along, mm. please, because one of the things that people don't realise, and I've heard officers say it before, people don't know the job. They do not know it at all, and that's reality. People know five percent of the job, and it was very interesting. I've got a friend of mine who's got a negative view of the place, so I said to him, "Come for a ride-along. Just come for a ride-along with me." So he came for a ride along, it's only a little while ago, and it changed his view. He saw how we dealt mm. with people. And he's like, wow, I didn't quite expect you did that. And I was like, but this is what we do. You just don't understand that we deal with this, we're dealing with these people often quite, you know, people with their worst moments. And we're dealing with it day in, day out. And actually, we're not there with, you're not there running with a gun in our hands. We're going in with the view, as I say, 90% of our job is with our mouth. So we're going in to try and make a difference. Go and do those ride-alongs and be involved in it and understand that policing is nothing what you think it is, you know. I agree. Mm. I've done quite a few. Yeah. And you just you don't know until you see how officers lead with – I mean, in most – in my experiences, they lead with their heart. They they genuinely want to help. They're, they're, they deal with and see things that none of us would even know – could not even imagine. Yeah, and and the thing is, you know? is that people don't realise the sac- like people go, "Well, you choose to do that." Job. I've heard this is uh, you choose to do that job, and you choose to do that job because you wanted to do the right thing. But ultimately, all every single person does becomes an officer, right? Wherever you are in the world, you sacrifice a lot. You sacrifice your family life because you, you shifts and things like that. You know, my family. I sometimes don't see my children sometimes for two to three days. You sacrifice your your physical mental health. No officer leaves or retires without scars, you know, and wounds and things that they've got to deal with and issues. Uh, And you do that because you want to make sure that that person can walk down the street safely at night. You do it so that you can go to sleep, not worry about someone coming through the window, uh, you know, attacking someone vulnerable. And I think people don't realise that officers sacrifice a lot so that you can walk down and be safe. And that's forgotten. 
Right. Sorry being deep, but it it's true. Wherever you are, you know, it's, it's the honest thing. I just wish people would understand that we are trying our best. And please, if you want that change, come and join. Make that be part of the change. Right. I agree. I, it's hard to see how much you sacrifice. Yeah, it's it's a lot. It's um, As I say, you, you sacrifice in family. You sacrifice your, your personal life. In a weird way, you become kind of people often say, "Oh, police kind of keep themselves to themselves," and you're doing it's a danger. You've got to be careful with that. And you've got to try and have friends on the outside. But you know, you you are always judged. You know, I always say, "Hi, I'm James," and they're like, "Oh, tell me about work." But the thing is, "Oh, this is James the cop." It's not James the person; <laughs> it's James the cop. So you get you get shoehorned into this position, you know. Uh, and sometimes, like if I'm not in my area, people go, "Oh, what do you do for work?" Oh, I just work for the government because I don't want to be judged as co- I want to be judged for me as a person. But that's the reality. Police as a as a cop, you're never off. You're never off duty because you're always known as that cop. And if you're not, you know, you, you walk down the street and something happens. There's an expectation that you respond. Right. Without a gun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're without a gun. Without a gun. Well, I've heard that a lot. So, you know, everything you were saying, it sounds really like it's one big profession. You might be in another country, but you it is a brother and sisterhood. I mean, it sounds like... Yeah, we're, we're, I mean, I love this why I love podcasts, because I listen and I get to hear different people from around the world. And one of the things that I was shocked when I started listening to podcasts, police podcasts, I was like, that's basically what I do. That's basically what we deal with. It's no different. And I and I actually think this is why it's good to have different people around the world to actually understand, you know, wherever you are as an officer is that you're in the same situation. Because at the moment we get judged. One officer in one country, now means that there's all officers mm-hmm. in the world. So we're getting judged as, uh, as all the same. So, hey, if you're going to put that stroke, then I want to be also counted as being part of the you know, brother and sister of other officers as well. And to me, I don't see an American officer as different. I don't see them as American. I see them as a, as a police officer doing the same thing that I would do. And I, I think 99% of what they would do and the way they would react would be the same way that I would deal with things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's why, you know, when you have podcasts like your own and stuff, it's really healthy for officers to see that we're all part of the same, really. Are you aware of the... I, you must be of the some of the cities markets here that are calling for defunding the police, taking money away. Are you aware of all of this? Yeah, and I mean, what's the result? And more crime. <laughs> more crime. Yeah, because the problem is, is that you know you've had a minority group of people, in the sense of a small group of very vocal people that don't represent the majority, um, that have effectively put an ideology that's taken uh, money away from the police. And it's made the most vulnerable parts of the community suffer the most. If you want better officers, it's quite simple. You just give better training. Because those people, the more training you give, the more resources you give, the better. So, you know, if you provide, for example, you increase the budgets, police can be more proactive and they can do things like, for example, mental health is a big issue, isn't it? So you can have an officer with a mental health worker because they can afford to provide an officer to deal with that. So, you know, so they can protect the mental health worker but go in with a, an idea of helping someone rather than having to put it to a situation where it's come so extreme, the police are just dealing with them when they've gone really off the cliff. I think they always say, the English saying is proof is in the pudding. You defund the police, what's happened? 
increase the funding and make them better. Right. Do you have the issues with mental health there that we have? Extremely so, yeah. We have, I mean, because we have a high amount of meth use, methamphetamine, mm. and, uh, you know, same in, I know in America there's, uh, it's quite an issue as well. That brings a lot of mental health issues. Generally, um, it, I'd say every week we'd have at least one to two mental health, high amount of suicides as well. New Zealand, I think, is almost highest for suicide per capita in the world. Um, so suicide is very prevalent here as well. So we deal with a hell of a lot. And again, it's not the reality is it's, it's something actually we shouldn't really be dealing with a lot of the time. A lot of the time, we shouldn't be dealing with it. But I mean, there are initiatives that are going on to try and change that and to try and make police and mental health be working together hand in hand. So rather than police officers turning up, it will be mental health officers and police turn up together. So there's a lot of incentives around that. But, you know, the reality is no, no, no one trains officers to deal with mental health because that's not what officers are designed for. We, we're expecting the police to do more and more different jobs but that's not what it's been designed for or trained for. The reality is, is that like mental health is a health issue. That's why it's mental health. But, you know, it's more and more right. police are dealing with that. Is suicide an issue on law enforcement in New Zealand or even UK? Yeah, so it has traditionally. Um, we have welfare um, around that. Um, but things like, so there's been a review and there's been a, a very high amount of not I would say not always PTSD because it's a very defined medical condition. You have to have real they're very really strict on what PTSD can be. But the reality is, is basically a lot of mental health issues has been shown within the police here and definitely in the UK. And it is I think every police force. The reality is you're dealing with people on the worst days often of their life, day in day out and then you go home and sometimes you don't have time to deal with those issues and then you're dealing with home and as I said to you earlier no officer leaves without scars that's the sacrifice we make so the people don't have to you know I agree and so what are the rewards Ben rewards oh listen every day is a different day I don't think, you know, if you, you know, if you want to walk in, you know, go into an office and you know what's going to happen, well, every day I never know what's going to happen. Um, and it's always, you meet some really interesting people as well and you have some fun, you know, I've had some great laughs with people and I've met some very interesting characters and yeah, so I, I mean, I always smile when I think about it because it's always, that's the fun part of the job is walking in, never know what you're going to do, meeting really interesting people. And meeting really good, you know, you work really, you work all the time with the same people every day, so you get quite close with them as well. You know, stuck in the car with them eight, ten hours, sometimes drive each other nuts, <laughs> you know. But you you end up having a very close relationships with people in friendships and stuff because you're just with them every day, and you know you, you get to know them and you bond with them because you're looking after each other. And you don't get that with other jobs. You certainly don't do it for the pay. No one does it for the pay. But um, you definitely, it's a great job. It's a great job. But also helping people, I'm sure. Yeah, well, I mean, that's part of the enjoyment. You know, when you meet people, you are. You're helping them. You're dealing with them on their worst day. And you just hope. I, I mean, I've always got a view that's called um, it's about being victim-focused. So my important thing is to look mm. after the people, the victims. Because as a criminal, my view is, is that you choose, you chose to do that act. No one made you. You chose to do that act. 
obviously people argue around that, but reality is you did that act. The vic- no one chooses to be a victim. No one asked to be attacked. No one asked for the house to be burgled. Yeah. So I think it's really important that they understand that one, they're not wrong and that we're there for them. And I've always had that view. Well, I know you think a lot about the officers in the United States and you feel connected to them. Is there anything you want to say? Things are a little hard right now <laughs> for officers in America. Yeah, I just say I just think you just have to have those personal conversations with people. Listen, you can't change like politics. There's always politics in, involved in police anyway, but have those personal conversations and change people. Like change them. Well, if you think like this, come and become mm-hmm. an officer or come for a ride along. Like if you think that, um, you know, have those conversations. People, the problem is people, as I say, people have a miss. They don't know what policing's about. So talk to people about that. You know, it's about being honest. Well, this is what I deal with every day, day in, day out. I've got a feeling that we've got, we're going through a bad time, but it's going to get better. I think it will change. It's just we're going through a rough time. So don't give up, basically. Have those conversations and challenge people and get them involved. Well, Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you, James, for being on the podcast. And thank you for being a police officer. So many of the things you've shared here today are things that officers experience here in the States. So thanks again. No, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you to the listener for tuning in. Don't forget to follow or subscribe. If you are so moved, please write a review and follow me on social media. I will include all of my social media information in the notes to the episode. I'm also including a link to a short documentary done on Constable Matthew Hunt. It includes interviews with his mother, his friends, and a recap of the incident. That will also be in the episode description. Thanks again for listening.